You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. You are watching or listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast, and I'm your host today, Christina Previtt. Today is another edition of the Hashtag Femme Doctor Series, and joining me today is Dr. Siri Chamarty, who is an ER doctor or emergency medicine doctor, and she was blessed with the beautiful name of Siri. So you can find her on Instagram as HeySiriMD. I have to know what's life like with the name Siri right now. Uh, I'm sure everyone's phones have already gone off. <laughs> yeah, right. I didn't even think of that. That's so awesome. Your parents didn't realize what they were doing when they named you that. No, actually, it uh, so it has like Nordic roots, so like uh, Norway and stuff, but also it has uh, roots in um, like I guess. Of a few different um, Sanskrit, like sort of Dravidian uh, languages, and it means uh, gold or wealth. Oh. So, well, that's a yeah. good name to have. Sometimes people get stuck with names that all the kids make fun of them over. So you got a good one. I hope so. Except now they they make fun of me for having the same thing as uh, Apple. My lawyer brain is turning on. I'm wondering if you could, um, would have difficulty copywriting your name or anything like that. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you have not looked into it. I would. <laughs> <laughs> That's another conversation for another day. Um, but um, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so uh, interested in what you do because I feel like your area, your specialty is probably maybe a little closer to what people actually see on television. You'll let me know if that is true or not. And you have to really be on your feet all the time. Like you have to be able to think quickly and act quickly. That's pretty true. Uh, I'm not sure if exactly it aligns with everything that you see on TV, but um, a lot of a lot of things um, in emergency medicine, I guess people have a perception of already, like ER doctors save lives. ER doctors are cowboys or ER doctors are mostly like male. And um, it's interesting because uh, when you're actually in the ER, it's so different. People come in for so many different complaints and uh, very little of what you see is exactly like what you see on television where you're, you know, coding someone or doing all these um, crazy things in order to revive people's lives. Um, most of the time, it actually involves talking to people. Literally, I feel like I uh, can maybe count the number of times that I've saved someone someone's life by maybe doing CPR. But um, it's the power of communication and the power of 
you know, human connection and language is something totally entirely different in the ER. Um, just telling someone like, hey, did you realize that maybe you shouldn't do what you've been doing? It, it actually makes a huge difference. And a lot of um, the populations that I've worked with um, so far, I have gotten the opportunity to work with a lot of underserved populations who maybe have never seen a doctor in their lives. So they didn't realize that what they're doing, it might be bad or, you know, they didn't have the kind of access to care that you and I maybe have or had for our lives so far. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because part of what I'd like to do with this series is have the physicians share what it's really like to do what they do and not just what we think they do based upon what we see on television. So that's actually something I don't think I ever thought about. And I forgot to mention that you are, you do emergency medicine in New York city, right? Exactly. So that's, you would definitely think, you know, me as a layman, I would think that you do get all of these exciting cases that you're getting gunshots and, you know, stabbings and all kinds of exciting stuff coming in the door all the time. But it sounds like it's not really that. Uh, not as much. It really depends on where you work. Uh, in New York City, uh, the history of New York is pretty extensive and, um, in the past, I think what there it used to really be considered like one of those unsafe cities. Um, but I think, you know, uh, since the late 1990s, early 2000s, um, New York has tremendously changed and uh, different populations are kind of isolated to different areas, more or less. It's a very diverse sort of environment. However, um, one area might have like a really high population of people who can't afford million dollar houses. And another area, like, you know, if you are looking in like midtown Manhattan, Times Square, probably going to be the most expensive property. And therefore, the population probably has more access to healthcare. And so even in within Manhattan, you won't see as much of those, you know, straight up like someone got shot, someone you know, it's more like, oh, people are getting hit by cars because that's there's more cars than there are maybe like guns in midtown Manhattan uh, that are shooting people necessarily. Um, yeah. So it, in other areas, it's very, very dangerous to even walk. Uh, you know, some of these uh, centers uh, like roads like Gun Hill Road aren't just named Gun Hill Road for nothing. <laughs> so uh, th those areas, you'll be seeing a lot of trauma, a lot of those like kind of adrenaline induced sort of things. But a majority of what emergency medicine doctors do across the country is very much so what I'm describing, which is not unless you are in that one area, like you work in downtown Chicago or downtown like Baltimore or something, you know, like then, yeah, okay, maybe you're seeing like trauma, like every patient, but majority of like the population maybe might, you know, suffer from a car accident or, you know, being one, sorry. And um, that's more, more or less common than uh, like someone having abdominal pain is going to be more common than someone having um, something super life-threatening. So my job is to make sure as an emergency doctor is that nothing life-threatening is going on at that time. And uh, it's not necessarily that 
I can, I can't always make a diagnosis to be quite honest. And I think people are really disappointed. Like, Hey, you're a doctor. Why can't you tell me what's going on? And all I can say is, Hey, um, what I can tell you is that you're not having a heart attack. You're not having a stroke. Unfortunately, I don't know what you're having. Maybe you're, maybe it's viral, but there's billions of viruses and literally I can tell you which one it is. So is it your role as the doctor in the ER? It's it's not your role to do treatment and diagnose them with something. It's just your role to make sure that there's nothing that's going on right at this moment that is threatening your life. Is that right? Um, That's more or less. um, It's it's more to initiate the care for the patient. And um, most of the times I could tell you, I have a good idea of maybe what's going on, or I know what path the patient might follow. Like, uh, for example, um, I don't know, like someone in their 50s comes in uh, with some abdominal pain. Uh, And okay, I like have an idea of like the things I'm looking for. And if I find kind of the things that make me more concerned, I might keep them at the hospital. Therefore, I've already like started them on like a path to seeing some specialists, talking to more doctors, trying to really figure out, oh, maybe is it, you know, things that are dangerous, but, you know, maybe not life threatening that I necessarily treat in the ER. And then it's really like making sure the patient is okay, Uh, because if someone walks out of the emergency department and suffers, then that's ultimately comes back to us. Like, hey, why didn't you make sure this patient wasn't suffering from X, Y, Z that was super, uh, super emergent for treatment? And that's and I think like right now we serve a really large role in primary care as well, because. Um, a lot of uh, what happened with coronavirus is a lot of primary care physicians were uh, more or less uh, cutting their hours or having to uh, cancel some appointments. So sometimes patients come in for less uh, less glorious things, such as medication refills, but we can do those things as well. Um, and it's really like making sure, like I said, the patient goes on the right path, either staying in the hospital or being observed for whatever is happening or going home safely. What about the people you described that are there because they don't have health insurance? What do you do for them or what can you do for them so that they can go on to see other specialists? So the ER isn't just medicine. Uh, A lot of what happens in the emergency department is social work too. Um, if people don't have insurance, the, the cool thing about the ER is you can't deny anyone treatment because they don't have insurance. You have to treat every single person that comes through their, through your door. Um, what we can, we can get them set up with the, um, appropriate, um, individuals who are able to kind of tie them into like programs like Medicare and Medicaid, uh, different insurance programs, or, like trying to figure out like if they're homeless, for example, like trying to figure out shelter placement or a plan of care. Like, hey, um, I know you don't have insurance, but you're, you're something's wrong with your eye. Let me refer you to a clinic that's a free clinic that happens like every Sunday. You should go this Sunday. But what I do know is that it's not going to kill you <laughs> at this time. But like really setting them up for it, like that sort of care um, that happens is 
uh, something that we do do in the ER. And also like family issues, social issues, like people, keeping people safe and protected uh, against, you know, harm is like kind of also what we do. So. So did you think that that's what practicing emer- emergency medicine was going to be or was that a surprise to you? Uh, I think uh, it's interesting because a lot of fields of medicine uh, don't allow this sort of patient interaction. Um, there are very few that I would say it's like you really have this opportunity to learn about people's lives in this way. Um, that being said, I think it's a very self-selecting profession. Uh, people who do ER um, might have a keen interest in a wide variety of fields or um, interest in specific things, but uh, they are required to kind of expose themselves to emergency medicine prior to selecting that field. So rotating through uh, for you know training, like before I matched into a training program, I was kind of exposed to this. And personally, I think it's an incredible opportunity and an incredible profession, but uh, it's not for everyone. <laughs> you know, I can make assumptions, but I don't want to do that. Like, what would you say, are certain qualities that you have to have to thrive in that? Like you said, it's not for everybody. So who's it for? (laughs) It's for the quick thinkers and the people who, uh, we don't make very long term relationships with most of our patients. Some of them may be because they keep coming back to the ER because they don't have no place to go. And then eventually, you know, you really get to know them. For, but for most of our patients, we meet them in their most vulnerable moments. It's people who like to, uh, who are creative because you have to know how to use the resources that you have or be creative in like your management or like a care plan, like saying, oh, I know you can't do X, Y, and Z, but why not? like W and V, and then maybe we can figure out how to do X. Like, so it's like kind of figuring that out. Um, it's for people who, uh, like to multitask maybe are a little, uh, ADHD, but at the same time, very patient, uh, we get a lot of, I think a lot of people have this misconception that emergency doctor are triage doctors. And that's, that's not necessarily like how it actually is because literally the people who call us this or the people who tell us, oh, you're just there to triage. Just no, I kind of figured out what was going on. And I said, Hey, look, like they need to see you. And therefore they got this chance to see you. So if I didn't figure it out, then they might not be in this path. They might be in a totally different path and they may not ever find out what's going on. Is this the kind of area that you could have your entire career in, or does it sort of have a burnout rate? Uh, There is a lot of burnout in emergency medicine, but I think it's because uh, the actual work itself, if you think about um, normal, quote unquote, normal jobs, like they're generally speaking, people think nine to five, 40 hours a week, yada, yada, you know, Mm -hmm. like you got weekends off and yeah. um, emergency medicine isn't really like that. It's more, okay, you work a certain number of hours uh, per month or per week or, you know, a certain number of days. Uh, it might not necessarily be five or seven days a week. Um, you do have to switch between doing a day shift and night shift in some cases. And 
that's where I think people really get burnt out is, uh, you know, kind of uh, having your body adjust over so many years or having your kind of like you're constantly being flexible about your schedules. Like for you working a holiday is like, oh man, like no one else wants to work the holiday. Your place of work never closes. It's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So it needs to be open for that long. So someone has to be there. And I think, uh, I think also the fact that like, um, people don't find what they love in it. Truly. What, what do you mean by that? Can you explain that a little more? You're generally unsatisfied with your job. Why would you do it? And maybe they went into it for the wrong reasons or, Usually that's not the case. Usually it's just um, I, emergency medicine is one of those fields that's very impacted by uh, political environment, social environment. Um, it's like uh, it's like uh, a field that requires you to be aware of like all of these things in order to successfully treat your patients. And that gets exhausting. It's like yeah. managing so many different worlds at once. Like, oh man, like if I do this, it will cost this patient this much amount of money, but I know that they can't even afford to pay for a Uber to get to the ER. They took the train like two hours to get here. Like, I don't want to do that to this patient. What if, what if I think about like what plans exist right now or how their plans will change or, you know, like, yeah, I guess that's not something that if you're working in a traditional office, And, you know, you're a dermatologist, for instance, because I just went to the dermatologist today. And you know that you're not going to deal with that because they've already shown their insurance card before they even got to you. So that's, those just aren't considerations that you have when you're talking to a patient, right? Yeah. Also, I mean, you always do what's best for the patient, but when you have the patient's best interests at heart, a lot of things go into it. There's a lot of socioeconomic determinants of health that exist in the ER. And unfortunately, just thinking about some of those determinants, like, hey, if I, just the most simple example is a homeless man, um, uh, I don't know, trips and falls and um, has a, a laceration on his scalp. And, um, you're, you can't rely on this guy for some reason to come back to your emergency department because he's never been there. And he maybe is like, you know, actually like lives on the streets, like 20 miles away, but he's just here. So you just have to think like, oh man, do I put staples in it? Because the staples could get infected, but I don't know if this guy can come back or go to any other shop. Like he's homeless. Like, what? No, what, and like, what do you do? And what, even those small considerations, like make a big difference. Do you often encounter people with mental health issues and and what do you do under those circumstances? It's treated like normal, like, uh, and like we treat any other, you know, uh, conditions people. It's not rare to see people who, um, have, uh, you know, have different issues going on in their life and that cause them to feel a certain way or um, come in with like, you know, suicidal ideation or suicidal attempt, depression, 
Um, we really, I think it's really important that we make sure that they're not a threat to themselves or a threat to anyone else. And a lot of, a lot of it is uh, we use um, our psychiatry consultants in the emergency department who are specially trained to determine, um, you know, certain facets of a patient's uh, kind of like history and whatnot to kind of make that determination on if they're really okay or not, or if they need to be hospitalized and uh, treated in the hospital. Well, it seems like you have to know so many different areas you know, if I go to a dermatologist or a GI doctor, it's for a very specific thing, but it seems like you have to know all of it. So at what point do you refer it to another, maybe a specialist that's in the hospital? Can you explain how that works when someone goes to the ER? Sure. So I think people who come to the ER have a very specific complaint. Usually, um, we do know, as someone called it uh, recently, is the best five minutes of every specialty. So we know, like the best five minutes of dermatology. Maybe not, but I don't mm-hmm. know. <laughs> or like yeah. the best five minutes of cardiology, without dealing with you know the all the chronic issues that come with it. You know, so um, we know we know enough to take care of a patient and. We are constantly reading, constantly learning. Uh, being a doctor isn't easy. So we constantly have to update our credentials, keep up with literature, new studies and whatnot. Uh, in terms of referring it out, it would really be, is it an emergency condition that we need to manage now? For example, uh, uh, if someone had a prolonged erection, it's called priapism. And uh, that is a medical emergency because you could potentially lose that area of your body because it's been going on for yay many hours. That is a emergency and we're able to deal with that in the emergency department. But if we have consultants in the hospital who are urologists who specialize in it, they can also come down and deal with it. But say you're just coming into the ED because you're having... um, issues, uh, in your sexual life, then that's maybe not something that we necessarily deal with in the emergency department. And we would say, Hey, uh, you know, it's not really life-threatening at this point. You need to go see a urologist. Well, I certainly was not expecting that subject to come up. Is that something that you had recently, or is that something that happens often? It doesn't happen very often, but we are trained in dealing with it. I'm just saying like that, that's like a really easy example to give, I guess, because I did encounter this when I was a resident or not a resident, sorry, a student. Um, when I was a medical student, we did have a case where someone, unfortunately, uh, for a adverse reaction of a drug had a prolonged erection for almost two days. Wow. Yeah. Why is that life-threatening or or penis um, threatening. (laughs) (laughs) Just keeping it interesting for the audience. (laughs) Uh, So basically, um, if you, if blood doesn't flow to any part of the body that it's supposed to continually flow through, then that's a problem. Like if blood, uh, 
stopped flowing, things um, become stiff. So a prolonged erection is just like where your blood isn't flowing the way it's supposed to, to your penis. Therefore, all of those tissues, they're kind of dying in a process called necrosis. So it can either happen in the veins or it can happen in the arteries, like your vasculature, essentially. So uh, that's essentially the bad part about having that condition. And so what you need to do is you need to go and kind of drain that blood out that's stopping new blood from flowing to these tissues that really need it in order to preserve all that area. Oh man, that sounds rough. Did you ever have to do that procedure? Uh, well, the case that I had as a medical student, we did go to the, uh, operating room and we were, um, in the operating room for about two hours trying to kind of drain, um, all the blood. And even at that point it had been a few days. So it's, I have to ask you when something like that happens, I mean, to me, it's funny, right? And is it funny to you at the time or are you just so focused on the emergency that you're not really, you know, you're not thinking that it's funny or are you thinking it's funny? I, I don't know. I mean, most of the times I question how did that happen? Uh, I think the more funny things to me uh, are people, things like people can't, con- or that people can control are the things that are funnier to me. Like for example, this guy, he had a adverse reaction from a drug. He couldn't control that. That wasn't, that wasn't something that he knew would happen, but like people who uh, come in and uh, they fell on an object and I'm like, Hmm. I'm fairly certain it's very hard to fall on this particular object for it to end up in your anus. That's not (laughs) that common. (laughs) Like that's more funny to me than like say, oh man, I feel really bad for this patient. Like he just did what he was supposed to. And he ended up in this bad situation versus, uh, there's a stereo in your butthole what would you like me to do about that? (laughs) I feel like this conversation is degrading, but I'm going to go with it. What kinds of things have people put in their butt that you've seen? Lots, like literally you name it, they probably have tried it. I think you Um, mentioned a tube of lipstick to me the last time I talked to you. uh, Like lipstick, lotion. I don't know why utensils. Um, very like common household things, I think, are the most common kind of uh, things that are found in there. So how do you get it out? Sometimes we're able to retrieve it. Um, and sometimes we're unable to retrieve it in a uh, safe setting. So then at that point, you do have to get surgeons involved. And oh, So and basically have- you put on a glove and, and dig in there. Uh, sometimes if it's, if it's not deep enough, if it's too deep, unfortunately, that kind of, uh, it's outside my area of expertise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, inquiring minds want to know Siri, cause we can't start this conversation and then, you know, just end without these questions answered. No, so- no I think these are great questions. And honestly, that's what makes my job really actually it's kind of rewarding like foreign body removals from yay here or yay there are actually really rewarding because you fixed the problem like okay you had a chicken bone in your throat I got the chicken bone okay great 
you feel better. I did my job. You feel better. We're both good. Bye. <laughs> but um, yeah. doesn't sound like it, those are boring at all. But uh, but going back to the question, I mean, have you ever had to really fight the urge to laugh during some of this? I have. I really have. Um, sometimes, uh, luckily now we're all wearing masks. So I can smile or laugh or just think you sound ridiculous underneath a mask. But most of the times, honestly, I really feel bad because a lot of people like the reasons they come to the ED aren't really because they want to be there. And I really sympathize with that. And I feel bad that they are there. But um, well, imagine how embarrassing it must be for them to go to go into the ER and say, I put this in my butt and I can't get it out. Usually they don't say that. Yeah, I was going to ask you, do they admit that they they make up a story, right? Yeah. Oh, I just fell in the shower. Mm. Really? (laughs) Explain how this fall happened. No, I mean, it's not it's not my job to really, you know, inquire about that. It's more it's more like my job to make sure that they're okay. And I'm actually happier that they came to the emergency department to get help than I am that they stayed home and developed like an infection and later came in when they were super sick, almost about to die. Cause then at that point, it's going to be harder to help them than like, Hey, I know, like, I know it's embarrassing, but you know, you really have to explain to me why the CT shows that there is a fork in your anus. Like, you just really have to tell me how that got there. You know, what? how did that get in there? Yeah, it can, it can be embarrassing. I mean, I feel for anybody who's in a situation like that, because I think as human beings, we've all had to go to the doctor and talk about something that was just sort of embarrassing. It's, it's amazing that we're all human beings. We're all having a similar experience, right? But bodily functions are still embarrassing sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I feel like people apologize for puking and I'm like, that's okay. You can puke. I'm okay. Like here's a puke bag. Like, like, this is my 15th time today. It's like, it's okay. Go poop. Do your thing. <laughs> yeah. It, it's sort of a private thing. You know, we're taught, you know, you poop in private, you go to the bathroom in private. I mean, if you happen to throw up, I think it's generally something you kind of want to do without everybody watching you. Right. So, and then you have to go to the doctor and, and talk about these things and, um, it can be, it can be uncomfortable. So, <laughs> but I don't know, are you ever, well, you're, I've always said that doctors really just look at us like we're a piece of chicken, like whatever <laughs> they're looking at, you know, whatever body part, if it's your privates or whatever, they, they're not sitting there judging like, oh, wow, you know, she needs to shave or, you know, that's interesting. I never saw that before. <laughs> Am I right? Please say I'm right. I would like to be right. Yeah. we. <laughs> I rarely remember what patients honestly like look like after I like document it. It's like, okay, like I don't think of it in that way. I think of it more of like as a, oh, okay. Like, um, what am I looking for here? If someone comes in with uh, a chief complaint, like they say, I have throat pain. I'm looking at your throat. Like, okay. Like I'm looking for specific things. Do you have pus? Is your, uh, is there redness back there? Is there certain things that should make me more concerned that there's an abscess back there? I'm not looking like, oh, 
they ate spinach and there's spinach on their teeth. Like <laughs> what happened open their mouth? Like, no, it's not like it's not like that at all, you know. Well, thank God. Just for so for everybody who's ever worried about that, there you go. There you have it. Yes. So I feel like we just dove right into your work as an ER doc, but I wanted to also talk about you personally and your education. Did you always know that you wanted to be a doctor? Uh, no, actually. I was uh, dead set on uh, doing everything that uh, didn't fit the norm, I think. Like, I wanted to explore all my options before I made up, you know, my mind. Uh, initially, I was thinking I could be a politician. Um, that didn't go so well. <laughs> Did you actually try that? No, it was a. Uh, it was in high school. I was like exploring all these things, and I like joined the Model United Nations. And I was like, I so can't be a politician. I don't know what all these policies mean, and all these words on this paper just confuse me. This isn't for me. Um, I tried uh, like law, and then I was like, I. It's not for me either. Um, but I really liked uh, certain aspects of each field. And I didn't know exactly, I think, what I wanted to do, to be quite honest with you. But I wanted to have a job where I was able to do anything at any time, if that's what I wanted. And I think the coolest part about being an emergency medicine doctor is that you can do anything at any time. It's really related to every single part of your life. Like if I wanted to go uh, be in the military, for example, like I could go be a military doctor at a base or, you know, join the military. I could, uh, if I wanted to um, be a journalist, I could be a medical journalist. Like emergency doctors are great for like medical journalism. Uh, If I wanted to go Uh, just like anything, if I wanted to do business, I could like be in hospital administration because I know how all of the consultants um, operate their fields in addition to the emergency department, which is probably like, it's the way that patients come into the hospital. Over 90% of patients come through the emergency department in order to be hospitalized. Um, So it's, it's really like whatever I, you know, if, if at some point I feel like my career as a doctor is not that fulfilling to me. And I decide to pursue education. I can always, um, you know, work in education for like medical school or, you know, whatnot. So I think the, that the fact that like my avenues are open is something that kind of, um, pushed me towards a path in medicine, but specifically in emergency medicine. And also, I also want to be like, be able to be like, Hey, I can help you if uh, there's ever like a in-flight emergency. I'm a doctor, but also the doctor. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm a doctor and I play one on television. (laughs) Have you ever been on a plane where they would ask, is there a doctor present? Uh, I think before I actually graduated medical school, but I never um, had the, I, I don't, I don't seek those opportunities. You didn't raise your hand. Yeah, I was, a, I was, I think I was like a pre-med at the time. And, um, I've definitely had a friends who've encountered situations on planes, but if you had to be in any field of medicine that would prepare you for literally anything to go on anywhere at any time, this is the one to be in. Also, I decided sometime as a pre-med with all those uh, crazy shows, 
on TV that I wanted to survive the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> I was like, you know what? Let me just do the most practical thing with my life. And whatever that is, I will be able to survive. <laughs> and it, quite literally, like COVID has been that. It's like, oh, can you survive like, you know, people dying in front of you, like left and right? Can you survive who's infected, who's not infected? Can you survive like dodging like bullets? <laughs> like yeah, some people are com- some people are comparing this to the zombie apocalypse. Yeah. It's, it's essentially, it's, it's not like that, but it's essentially like, this is the modern version or the maybe pre-zombie zombie apocalypse. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> well, 2021 was interesting and, um, 2020, I'm sorry, 2020 was interesting, but 2021 started out very similar to 2020. So we'll see how things uh, go this year, but, um, so when did you decide that you wanted to be a physician? Because you it sounds like you were on a pre-med track in college. Uh, I decided I wanted to major in... So I didn't know that I was going to exactly do pre-med. Uh, but I know meeting the requirements for doing pre-med means that you can do many other things still. Okay. So, so you weren't set on going to med school necessarily while you were in college. Uh, not until I think the end of my first year, like, you know, a lot of people, they go in and they like sit down next to the chemistry class and they're like, I'm going to be a doctor. And I'm like, this yeah. is the bro, literally shop. I'm just trying to shop on it <laughs> right now. <laughs> uh, no, for real. Um, so it's, a uh, it's very, I, I went to a public school my entire life. And I think, uh, that's something that, um, taught me a lot. Uh, it taught me a lot about like, um, public education in America. I went to a public college. I went to a public medical school, how, uh, resources are allocated to different institutions. Um, where'd you go to school? I went to school for college. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And med, uh, for college, I went to UCLA and for medical school, I went to the medical college of Georgia. So I was in state at the time uh, for both colleges. So honestly, that was a huge factor in choosing, you know, whatever I did. Yeah, uh, it's expensive. Not to do uh, a lot of things. Uh, like a lot of people will say, hey, look, I can't afford to pay $70,000 a year for a education and yada, yada, because, you know, yada, yada. So uh, I think, the fact that I went to a public college, I had a class size of people, my peers, just like 4,000 people or 5,000 people who were in my class. So that meant like four years of that. So 20,000 people. And at anyone, there's so many people around you and they're all doing incredible things. You're exposed to so many different pathways of what to do. And I entered um, college as a neuroscience major because I was interested in uh, all the cool things that were happening with like artificial intelligence and whatnot. And then I very quickly realized <laughs> later on that I was not very talented in the field of mathematics and physics. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, isn't isn't being a physician a lot of math and 
Uh, not only some fields, if you're doing like nuclear radiology, but I, I don't, I don't integrate things on a regular basis. I, I mainly just multiply by six for like a heart rate and like, <laughs> and add things. Well, there's sort of this joke in the, in with lawyers that we went to law school because we weren't good at math, because if we were good at math, we would have gone to med school. So it's really interesting that you're saying this. So now I can tell people, well, you don't necessarily have to be good at math, but you have to no. talk about the sciences to even get in. You have, you, right? you have to talk about the sciences and you have to understand them conceptually, but many fields uh, will not require you to do multivariable calculus on a daily basis. Uh, I just do a lot of multiplying, dividing, adding, and subtracting. And that's very basic. Like I could do that. Like, oh, okay. Like this patient's, let me uh, calculate yada, yada about this patient. Or it's amazing what the internet now is. I just punch in some numbers and it'll do it for me. But like conceptually, I understand what they're doing. It's like, oh, they're calculating this circumference for this reason. Okay, like I know how to calculate a circumference, like, but it uh, doesn't mean that, like, you know, necessarily that I have to do it by hand or anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it does. I think that part of like being a physician, like I said, opening my eyes up to so many different fields. I just really wanted to be able to do anything and uh, have those skills to be so flexible in what I really wanted to achieve. I still feel like I'm relatively early on in my career. Um, I know that I have the power and the opportunity to change lives, but in what capacity that will kind of manifest itself in the next uh, few years, it will be all, I think, determined on not only like, like it will be determined on our atmosphere, like healthcare atmosphere. And uh, that's something that I too uh, feel like I have a opportunity to be involved with. So tell me what it's like to be an ER doctor in COVID. It's, uh, it's surviving the zombie apocalypse. Yes. Yes. <laughs> no. So it's, it's actually really, uh, it's actually super, um, it's super crazy to think that such a thing has happened. Um, a part of emergency medicine uh, is solely dedicated uh, to the study of um, disasters. It's called disaster medicine. And basically, um, in this uh, kind of area of emergency medicine, people uh, describe how to allocate resources, how to triage, how to, um, how to like really uh, be, uh, be, do the most good for the most number of people in a mass casualty event. And I feel like COVID is essentially a mass casualty event. It's what we train for in a, like medical, like in uh, emergency medicine. Like it's, uh, it's something that we feel like, like prior to, um, prior to COVID, I feel like, you know, you saw, saw a lot of complaints, but you never, maybe the last mass casualty that New York City specifically has had was September 11th. You know, this is something that uh, kind of hit us, hit us like shockingly very hard. And we were one of the first people to be hit as well. So we had no idea what we were doing because it came, it came to New York City in March and April. Um, So being an emergency medicine doc, how that changes your life is now there's a new threat out there, like a virus, like all the movies and 
you know, TV shows describe. And we have no idea how it works. And we're just trying to figure out, oh, does it work kind of like this disease or does it kind of work like this disease? And um, what we're doing is we're basically like saying, hey, the patient's condition is such and such. This is what we're seeing. This is what we have to treat. Like we're just treating what we can see, um, but we don't really know what that is. You know, all I'm saying is like, oh, okay. Like this patient is literally um, crashing, meaning their blood pressure is dropping rapidly. Their heart rate is not keeping up. So we are giving them medication to maintain their blood pressure and maintain their heart rate. But at the same time, we don't know why that's happening or what's going to manifest itself. And that's what happened in March and April. And slowly we're like, we like learned a little bit more and learned about the therapies that worked and the therapies that didn't. And um, the things that we may have necessarily done then, we're not going to do the same things now. So it's a lot of like trial and error being an ER doctor. But I think being in our fields, we have that mindset that, oh, okay, like, all right, fine. Like, you know, you don't want me to give them the green pill anymore. Okay, fine. I can give them a blue pill. Like I'm open to that, like kind of um, new management or like new, um, new way of thinking, but it's really, it's really like been kind of incredible to see how like science has truly like kept up in this regard. Yeah. I mean, it's evolved a lot. It sounds like since March, well, I guess it was around before March, but it seems that it has evolved a lot. And, um, I don't understand the the nuances of that the way that you do as a doctor, but it's definitely something we've seen all over the news. And I think a lot of people are in a panic over it, especially now that there's supposedly this new strain that's more contagious. Are you seeing any of that? I actually don't know the current news on that, whether we've seen it here in the U S and if we have, how many cases we've seen. I think, there, uh, I think it got reported in a few States, New York included. Uh, unfortunately in the emergency department, we don't test for strains. So I couldn't tell you like, Oh, this patient has this strain of this disease. That's something that I think that like public health more so monitors. But what I can tell you is that um, people have the right to be anxious, to be fearful. And I honestly feel like it's actually the people who are not seeing the realities of what kind of panic this is causing. And like, it's, it's kind of those people who are maybe more so a danger than people who are like, Hey, I'm going to isolate myself. I'm going to socially distance. I'm going to wear a mask. Like just the simple, like, thing of wearing a mask and standing six feet away from each other. Like I respect the pe- every single person who's done that because uh, for the people who haven't, they've unfortunately, like you'll see like people who are very prominent, who didn't believe that such a thing was happening. And then they're in our care. And then we're like, well, it's not great to be in this care because we still are trying to figure out the puzzle and the pieces and the treatment. So did, was there a period though, since March where you were at capacity in your ER? Um, I think mainly in April and even, um, since then, I think uh, here and there, there have been times where, uh, we've been hitting, uh, after Thanksgiving, I think a little bit, um, specifically, uh, I think that unfortunately it's linked a lot to social distancing. <laughs> so yeah. the holidays weren't exactly 
you know, didn't do great things for, you know, the spread of this disease. And I think a lot of people feel a lot of pandemic fatigue. Uh, it's a it's a phrase used to describe um, the sort of conditions this pandemic has caused and uh, people just being like, yeah, now forget it. I'm going to do whatever I want now. It's been nine months. Why should I continue doing this? Like, you know, so. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense. I think it's hard because now finally, like as of December, mid-December, we finally have an answer and that's, no one gets this. Like, like just no one get the disease and we'll be okay. And that's going to be impossible. Like small talk, smallpox took like hundred, like what it was like a hundred years or something to eradicate. It's going to take hundred, like a long time for, you know, this particular virus to be eradicated, but in order to control the rates and kind of uh, make it more so like something manageable for the healthcare and for people like to keep people safe because unnaturally we've seen people die of like COVID that, you know, were otherwise healthy, like 30 year olds, 35 year olds. They don't just die. <laughs> like they, they have a long life ahead of them. Usually the, the number one cause of um, death in this population is like motor vehicle accidents. Like, so it's uh it's something that I think will will be, you know, something we look back on in the future. Like, oh, okay, I'm glad we did that. Like, I'm glad we socially distanced. I'm glad we like got the vaccine. Like, you know. Yeah, better to be safe than sorry. And that's a popular mis- misconception, I think, with the younger crowd. And younger, it's always relative, but I'd say 20, 30-year-olds. I've heard so many people younger in that age group say, I'm not really that worried about it. You know, I'm young and healthy. And if I get COVID, it's, you know, I'll be fine. I'll just recover from it. So I'm glad that you're pointing out that there have been young people, that healthy people that have died from it. Definitely. Uh, I think it's actually like over the news, like, and some of the uh, people who it's hard to imagine that it could happen to people who are otherwise young and healthy, no medical problems. In most cases, yeah, like, okay, fine, you might have like some cold like symptoms and recover. But what if you're one of those people who goes into severe uh, pulmonary failure or heart failure or what if you're one of those people who requires a heart transplant? Do you know how hard it is to get a heart transplant or a lung transplant? It's insanely hard to get like, you know, that kind of, that, that's like, you know, the worst case scenario, right? Versus like, oh, I'm just happy that I like socially distanced and wore my mask. Like, I'm just happy I wore my mask. Like, that could be like the minimum that you do, you know? Yeah. Did you get the vaccine? I think I saw on Instagram that you did. I did. I did. I got the vaccine. Uh, I'm due for my second dose uh, soon. And I'm super happy that I did (laughs) because I work in a very high risk situation. uh, But also like, um, I would have gotten it even if I was a normal. Well, I'm I'm perplexed by all the people expressing concern about getting the vaccine just saying that they don't feel like, and these are laymen, not doctors, saying that 
you know, it hasn't been tested sufficiently and I'm just going to wait and see what happens to everybody else, which I don't like, what are we waiting for to see if they die or (laughs) throw an extra head or something? So what would you say to people like that who are doubting whether the vaccine is really safe? So vaccines still, even though it was emergency authorized approval, right? It's still, uh, it still needs to go undergo a rigorous process of testing and whatnot. And I, I totally get it. Like it's okay to have vaccine hesitancy, which is the term we use to describe like all those feelings. Um, But I think that uh, seeing kind of the uh, outcomes of actually getting the disease, getting the vaccine, most people have reported uh, kind of minimal side effects like, Hey, had some body aches. I had um, some arm pain. Like I'd rather have arm pain and body aches than require, you know, a, like then, you know, get the most severe form of the disease. Also, um, it has been tested. The technology people are very hesitant to accept. The only reason other vaccines weren't actually um, made in the same way is because uh, it's very impractical to have a vaccine stored at such a low temperature. And uh, once a vaccine vial is opened, it has, um, I think like five or six doses, they all need to be used and they, uh, or discarded at the end of the day. So mm. having, um, having said that, like it's impractical, for example, for a drug store necessarily to store a vaccine at negative 70 degrees Fahrenheit and only open the vial if like five or six people need it. Like, you know, any, just think of any normal vaccine, right. That you get as a child or even like, you know, the flu vaccine or something. So, uh, that's why like most vaccines, that's not the preferred route. It was, um, most vaccines like are not the same way, but they don't change your DNA. It's just different technology. And this is kind of the most effective way to prevent the spread of this disease. Um, you'll see a lot of healthcare professionals lining up for it because they understand the kind of the technology and they understand that, Hey, this is safe relatively. Most vaccines, uh, give or take do not have effects in the long term. Like people, I don't know what people are waiting for. Like, like we won't know what's going to happen in 10 years from now, but most vaccines, the effects that they're going to have that are like side effects or negative effects, usually in the first couple of days and weeks, like, Oh, okay. You've had some arm pain or whatever. The only effect that they're really, really supposed to have long-term is um, immunity, which is what you want. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't know what they're waiting for either. I mean, whatever that is, it would be 10 years into the future or more. So are you going to wait 10 years to get the vaccine? (laughs) It really doesn't make sense. Yeah. Also, people don't believe in um, big pharma in America and in America. And I think, unfortunately, that does impact uh, the delivery of care and also the public perception of public health in America. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. We all know people that believe in conspiracy theories between the government and big pharma. And I know people that won't get flu shots because they think it's just a big scam for, you know, between the government and the pharma companies to make money. You know, I I get my flu shot. I haven't had the flu in years. So 
But I think everyone's entitled to their own opinion. I'm just saying I disagree with that. Can kids get the vaccine? What's the age limitation? Uh, I don't actually uh, know uh, if they were approved, but I can tell you that uh, it's not even to be withheld from uh, pregnant patients as well. So probably safe, but uh, right now, we're not at that rollout process for kids yet. Um, soon, uh, it will be, I think, for uh, kids. So, what's the cutoff, though? What's the cutoff age? What's the youngest? Uh, you I have to look at it. Uh, I don't think there's a specific. It's like eighteen, if I had to guess. Uh, I didn't actually read through like exactly because I don't have children myself, and yeah. I don't actually, uh, I don't actually work in um, public health, but. I do know that it's been shown to be safe in adults, for sure. Okay. There's probably uh, going to be recommendations for school-aged children uh, coming out soon because I know that certain states, uh, either their schools are still open or they're very anxious to get kids back to learning because a lot of um, school years have been lost during this time that you know there's been social distancing and Zoom learning. Yeah, I, I think the kids are having a hard time as much as it was a fantasy in every school kid's uh, mind to not have to go to school. I think now that they're actually not going to school, I think they miss it and they miss the contact with their friends and just having a normal routine. So I think it's important to get the kids back to school. I think it should happen in a safe manner whenever yeah. people determine that. You know, yeah, um, absolutely. So you and I, when we um, first became acquainted to talk about this podcast, we agreed that we were going to talk about doctors and the way that they are portrayed on television. <laughs> so what is your feeling about that? Are there any shows that you think are realistic and which ones are particularly bad? If you have an opinion. <laughs> There's so many shows out there. Uh, I would lie to you to tell you that I didn't watch VR, but I did watch VR and I actually really liked that show. It was, uh, it, it was in the early, like what, 2000s more so. Than I don't know. It was on a really long time though. It was on a really long time. Uh, it was okay. I wouldn't say it was very realistic to today's time or unrealistic. Um, the, sometimes I think, uh, Grey's Anatomy is like not. Not at all. No, not. Uh, I think it's the it oh it overdoes like the drama. <laughs> like I feel like maybe it's applicable in like the surgical field. Like yes, surgeons work very hard, and I'm sure. Um, it, it's actually like against you know hospital policy to hook up with your attending, or you know what I mean. Like it's like it's like most hospitals have rules in place where that's considered not cool. Like it's like you know, professor, you know, I mean, do Uh, they take that really seriously though? If you get caught, do they get fired? I think they take it very seriously. There's been definitely reports. uh, It's almost considered like assault. Yeah. But I mean, also it's not like, it's just the way they portrayed in that show, I think is like particularly deceiving. Like you could do whatever you want, whenever you want. And like, there's no consequences. And I think that that's, wrong because you'll watch if you like you know read the news even it'll be like oh so and so doctor fired for assaulting residents or students or like it's technically you know if it's not mutual not consensual you, you know like whatever those criteria are then it's against 
the law. <laughs> and it's also a form of, um, I guess, like subordination and like uh, using your power for, uh, for whatever. Kind of like Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> That reference is so 1990s, but I totally get what you're saying. Are you calling me old, Siri? (laughs) I said it was 1990s. (laughs) I'm just teasing you. Um, Yeah. No, I get it. There's sort of a power imbalance. A power imbalance. But you know what? I think uh, for people who glorify the medical field is like, oh, these doctors are so cool. Some people aren't really that cool. Like you're just like, all right, well, it looks like you read the textbook. Well, it was nice to meet you. Thanks for telling me about (laughs) nothing else. Interesting. (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know, it's like, it, like not everyone has this personality. Like there's definitely personalities, you know, uh, I think it just comes by fields and there it's like portrayed in a very different way. I think Scrubs is probably, a, it's actually a pretty accurate show in terms of medical education. Uh, like the content itself, it shows um, someone progressing in their career as a doctor from it being an intern, which is like that uh, level of training right after graduating medical school. These are their first experiences as doctors. This is like their first time doing something. And I think that uh, that show, what it does really well is what, not only both the like medical content, but also uh, some of the adjuncts to medical content. So like uh, in Scrubs, um, the guy counsels uh, someone on smoking cessation for the first time and is so convinced that this patient has listened to him. Like, you know, like I tell my patients all the time, like, hey, you should stop smoking. It's probably not doing great things for you. You're already on oxygen. It's probably not going to do great things for you. But this guy in Scrubs, he's so convinced that he has made this patient quit smoking, like a 20-something film. And he goes and sees the patient smoking in the hallway. And then he's like, oh, damn. Yeah, they don't well, listen, right? This, like, cynicism associated with like how much power you think you actually have versus how much power... You like, I don't know, if someone tells you something, you're you might like, you know, take it into consideration or you might shrug it off. And it it really depends on your knowledge and your trust and you know how seriously you take things that, you know, you say to people or like things that are said to you. But I think uh it portrays that aspect of medicine and also kind of the the bonds between uh different um different people like being co-residents or different specialties really well. Um, the resident is probably the newest medical show that I'm kind of aware of that shows a training necessarily in a, I think it's, it's like some of the actual medicine is fine. Like if you're really concerned about like someone who, uh, might have, um, a compression fracture, you should do a rectal exam. And that's what the guy tells the intern, like, hey, we're going to figure out if this guy is actually having, you know, what they say they're having. Let's uh, get your finger all gloved up and shove it up their ass. <laughs> like, oh my it's God, like, I would never have ever put those two things together. But it's a, it's, I mean, it's actually like a medical thing. Okay. Like I get it, but they portray medicine in such an, um, 
I think they like exaggerate at times, like, but at the same time, like that's kind of reality. Like uh, if your uh, heart is fluttering really like rapidly, um, some of the things you might consider doing is uh, putting ice on your face. But what they do in the show is they take a bucket of ice and they just dump it on the patient. And I'm like, I don't know if that's how I would have put ice on their face <laughs> versus like, if I'm I like, I've done this before is I got like bags of ice and I just kind of hugged it to like their cheeks or their head or, you know, it's different, like the way they portray it, but it's all, it's like actually medicine still. Um, and I think that that show also, it, it portrays like an aspect of medicine that's really critical, I think, in your development as a doctor, which is residency. It's like that glorified like time and training um, really well, actually. So, okay, I'll have to check that out. And actually, another doctor that I interviewed, Dr. Supriya Rao from Boston, she said that she also thought Scrubs was the most realistic. I think it's probably the most realistic and the uh, most medically like accurate. And also, like I said, the whole cynicism house is just good cases. Like, yeah, but literally like if you treated patients, like you treat like house treated his patients, like you would not be hired for very long <laughs> unless you owned your own practice. Maybe, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Unless- how do you learn about, or do you other than just doing it? How do you learn about bedside manner? It comes down to personality and it also comes down to uh, practice. And it also, I think it's not a learned skill. It's actually, if you think about it, most of the medical field is customer service. And if you have done any customer service job ever, then it kind of helps you uh, provide bedside manner. If you were like a waiter or a waitress, Hey, listen, like you got like half of like what you're going to tell the patient down or any, because you know how to say things to people in a way that they will listen to you or, Oh, I recommend that you get the olive omelet. It's like the special today versus like saying, Hey, I really do recommend you take these antibiotics because you have pneumonia. You've got like the skills kind of like set, you know, you just have to replace them with uh, medicine. And also, I think the hardest part about um, medicine is like talking about uncomfortable topics, especially in the emergency department. And like you said, people don't want to talk about their bowel movements. Uh, people don't really want to talk to you about their drug use, but it's so important that they we actually know like what's happening because we will just be perplexed or we'll do a urine tox, which will show us like, you know, oh, you should probably told us that you use these drugs before, you know, we give you any more to help you out. Um, so it's, we don't, we don't, we're not here to judge people in the emergency department. Like, I think that's something that's a misconception. Like you said, like, Oh, they'll say something. If I say this, I probably heard a lot of it. Um, and honestly, I'm not too surprised. Like, okay, fine. All right. I know that, you know, you decided to, for some reason, kiss uh, amoeba the other, or not amoeba, you know, like, you know, kiss a fish the other day and you decided to lick it dry. Uh, probably explains why you have an infection. But you know what? Whatever. Like, let's yeah. figure it out and move I've, on. 
I'm not going to admit that. Something I've often wondered, though, when I see this on television, I don't know if this is reflective of what really happens, but they'll start asking questions with somebody else in the room. And sometimes I'll think, well, maybe they don't want to answer those questions truthfully with that other person in the room. Like if you have a 19-year-old girl who's got abdominal pain and you want to find out if she's sexually active and her mother is standing there, what do you do? You ask them to leave the room. So you ask them because one time I had a situation where, and my boyfriend was in the room and I didn't, I didn't care, but the doctor said, he asked me if it was okay for my boyfriend to stay in the room. And luckily the answer was yes, but what if it was no? (laughs) And you could just say, Hey, like, uh, can I ask you to leave the room so that I could finish my exam or whatever? Sometimes, but but I guess like my point is that if I didn't want my boyfriend to know that I didn't want him in the room, he didn't really give me an opportunity to do that. Do you know what I mean? Like sometimes you want, like, I'm wondering if you, if you have to strategically assess when you're in a um, consult or whatever you call it, that, you know, there's another person in the room. I'm just going to ask him or her to leave. Do you do that? Uh, sometimes I do, uh, or sometimes I'll be like, Hey, uh, if it's like a pediatric patient, um, unfortunately Mm -hmm. they're under 18, um, unless it's like a very specific set of diagnoses, like, um, we have to disclose, uh, things to parents, but sometimes you don't have to disclose whatever they tell you to their parents. And you could be like, Hey, you know, I know you told me you did weed and that's why you feel so high and paranoid right now. And your mom is really worried about you, but like, and you say this, like, while saying, Hey mom, I'm just going to walk them over to check their heart rate over there. Like, and you're, you like walk them to like another end where the mom is not there. And you're like, Hey, listen, like I could smell it. I know you did weed. Like, listen, like, just tell me what like is going on. Cause I don't really care. And you should probably tell your mom, but I'll, I'll I'm fine to not tell your mom if it's not going to, doesn't mean that it's going to be like a life changing or management changing thing. Yeah. I mean, I would think the hardest thing is just sometimes just getting people to be honest about what they took, what they did. It's hard. Uh, I think, I think they're they're They tend to be more honest when they know that, um, whatever you tell them, they don't, we don't, you can't tell other people. Like you could be like, Hey, I've asked your entire family to step out of the room or, you know, and they're waiting in the waiting room or something very far away. Like, um, can you please tell me like what's going on? And I don't have to tell your family necessarily what all is happening. And I can tell them just that you're doing okay if you want me to. And I think people tr- tend to trust you more. Also, I think having like relatable experiences or something be like, hey, you know, I'm asked up too. Like, you know, I feel like sometimes some days you just don't feel well, <laughs> like it's okay. Like you don't have to be the, you don't always have to be like the, um, strong one necessarily. Like you can ask your son to step out of the room. You can just tell me like, Hey, I'm having difficulty at work and not making enough money or, you know, you really try to like understand where people are coming from. Yeah. You probably get good at reading people too. I would think. Uh, I think, that's a skill that you should come in with, but yeah, yeah you're probably yeah. right about that. 
Yeah, you get better at reading uh, what their true intentions are. Uh, like the way people say things will, um, will I think, either trigger you or um, it'll be like patterns of like speech that you'll kind of get used to. Like if someone asks you, okay, doc, I'm just in, just in a lot of pain and you know, you're talking to them and you're pushing on their belly, but you're like distracting them and you, there's really no pain there. Then you're like, mm, okay. And then you're like, okay, fine. Like I'll get you some pain medication. But then they're like, no, I want this opioid medication. And then you're like, hmm, mm. yeah, I don't know if that's going to work out today. Yeah. <laughs> or like, yeah, like, you know, you get really good. I think at uh, figuring out why people are there. And I think it's really important that you do because why do people come into the emergency department at three in the morning? They're either dying or there's something like seriously wrong with them. <laughs> people who come in for screening exams. I'm like, wait, you're here. Why do you need access to like a, some a provider who could help you? Because I don't know if I can necessarily address your six month hair loss today at 4 a.m. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's why that's where, you know, sometimes the mental health stuff comes in, right? Like maybe this person just has a mental health issue. Or maybe there's like something seriously growing on. Like, oh, maybe they come in there uh, being like, yeah, I've been losing weight or like losing my hair for six months. And then you'll notice that they're really quiet around their partner or like, you'll be like, hey, like, are you being abused? What's mm. the Those are like also, I think the things that we have to screen for and be really aware of. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point because we know that's prevalent. Unfortunately, with the pandemic, more so than it's like so unfortunate because I think mm. people are in like closed spaces. Like you don't know, like maybe this is their only escape to um, somewhere safe. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah, it's, it really is. But the ER is a safe space and uh, we do our best in the ER to try to actually figure out why patients are there, medical or non-medical. And I think we really try to help as many people as we can. And believe it or not, I don't want you there any longer than you want to be there. And I think people are like, oh, why hasn't the doctor told me about these results yet? Why hasn't the doctor done this? Like sometimes, you know, they get really angry and I'm like, Hey, I I wish I could you know make this test happen faster, but that's just not how it works. It takes time, unfortunately. And I think yeah. the other thing people expect from us is that we do everything so quickly. And sometimes, if we don't have those resources, then that's not happening. Like um, someone comes in, I don't know, for like hemorrhoids or something, and they expect you know, they expect all of their pain to be gone. And I'm like, it's going to be there for a little bit. Like the reality is that we're doing the best we can with what we have. And you might need to see someone outside the hospital at a different date in order to really fix, fix the problem. Yeah. Sometimes we just put like a bandaid, like, all right. uh, Yeah. So actually this is going to kind of help you, but what you really need is this and this and this. So are you a lifer in emergency medicine? What do you mean? Do you think that this is it for you or do you, or do you not know, or do you sort of have some uh, ideas people, what you'd like to do? Uh, most people who do a certain field stick with it. 
very few people that I know have ever uh, transitioned uh, between fields because you have to go through extensive training. Uh, for me, this is something that makes me happy. I like it. And honestly, like, what I like about it is like the fact that I can always work part time. I never have to recruit patients. I never like, I feel like patients just come to the ED because they need help. And there's always going to be people who need help in more ways than one. So I feel like for me, this is probably what I want to do. Um, what exactly I'm going to do with it. I don't know. Maybe in the future I'll do something like uh, I might like travel or something and practice emergency medicine, or I might, I don't know, want to like uh, write and like practice emergency medicine. Write or... a book. <laughs> On what? <laughs> it's, it's All of like... your experiences treating penises and anuses and things of that nature in the emergency room. <laughs> Is it too vulgar? <laughs> People would, I mean, I think people are genuinely interested in what kinds of things come through because one of the things that I do as a divorce lawyer is I do get to hear really intimate details about people's lives that they're not generally advertising, you know, maybe not things like that about their bodies, but things about their finances, their feelings, um, you know, if they've stepped out on their relationships and, and things like that. So. Um, you know, I think, I think there's the same sort of interest in what doctors do and getting to hear these really intimate stories that, that we don't talk about publicly. No, we don't talk about a lot of it because we're also not allowed to. Thank you so much, Siri, for sharing all of this with me. I, it's been very enlightening, all of it, every little piece of it. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, oh, you're welcome. Thank you for saying yes. Maybe we yeah. could do it again sometime. Maybe. This was really fun. <laughs> well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And for anybody who would like to follow up with Siri and see what she's doing on Instagram, because you were very active on Instagram and it's, um, it's a good mix of fun, entertaining stuff and actual real medicine, right? You can find her at at Hey Siri MD on Instagram. So look her up. Thank you. Appreciate Bye. it. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.